ACNFers. It's the Atavistian time of the month. Your Atavist Magazine bonus podcast. So, you know, spoiler alerts. I think my first rough draft is my outline. That's kind of what I'm learning about myself. Like, my, my first drafts are very rough. Oh, hey, CNF, it's at CNF Pod, that creative nonfiction podcast. Not that one, that one. The show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Here we go again. I hope you're not tired of nautical disaster stories. For episode 366, a couple weeks ago, we welcomed back David Grant for his book, The Wager. You know him. And now we have Tyler Hooper, whose piece, The Titanic of the Pacific, is this month's feature for the Atavis magazine, A Tale of Disaster, Survival, and Ghosts. You'll find that at magazine.atavis.com. Go ahead. Go and subscribe to them. No, I don't get any kickbacks, so you know my recommendation is true. We just love them. Love. Tyler is at Ty Hooper on Twitter, and you can learn more about his work at TylerHooperW.com. He blogs over at Medium.com slash at Ty Hooper, but we'll hear more from him in a moment, okay? Just hang tight. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. If you dig this show, consider sharing it with your networks so we can grow the pie and get this CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice, man. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, or a mean one, but why would you take the time to do a mean one if you're going to leave a review anyway? I don't think I'm that offensive. Am I? Am I? Uh, the wayward CNFer might see all those nice reviews and ratings that we have and go, shit, I'll give that a shot. Uh, like many of the 132 as of this date, uh, those ratings, a good chunk of them, I would say almost half are written reviews, which is bonkers when you think about it. So I just thank you for taking the time to do that. And uh, it, it really helps, helps validate the show. And uh, if you want to go a step further, there's patreon.com slash cnfpod where you can consider dropping a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNF Pod HQ. Show is free, but as you know, sure as hell ain't cheap. All right, first things first, we're going to hear from Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece. He's back. It's great to have Jonah back into the fold. Probably nobody happier than Sayward Darby, who got a reprieve from having to speak to me this month. Jonah talks about how he can prune giant limbs off a story and what questions he and Sayward bounce around when they're in pitch meetings. So why wait? Here is Jonah Ogles to lead things off. Rip. Cassidy Randall had her piece on, uh, you know, the woman who sailed, who tried to sail around the world, essentially. And then, you know, you had done Bill Donahue's piece where there's the kayak thing across the Bering Strait. Yeah. And then there was Cassidy's piece. And now Tyler's got a shipwreck piece. It's like you you, you just get these uh, these seafaring pieces. They they seem to really resonate with you, I think. I know. They clearly do. There's I, I clearly have like a boat weakness in pitches. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, Sayward and I were talking about this. And, and I do think there's something sort of like inherently, there's like an inherent tension 
to the act of being at sea. You're just like at the whims of huge forces. And, and I think you have to be like a little bit of a risk taker naturally, you know, to even like, I'm, I'm not buying a boat to sail across anywhere. You know, I don't, I don't want to sail across like the, the little inland lake here in town. Like, like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. like the the shore is just fine for me. So yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of them and um, they, but they, I mean, there have all been really good stories and really fun to work on. Yeah. There's something about a seafaring story that it, there's obviously there's there's motion and and it's the the principal figures are are in motion and sometimes that can be really you know challenging to come across in narrative nonfiction storytelling where you know the where your principal figures even as you're telling the story omnisciently is like they are in action they are moving and they are at odds with the elements so it's a there's a natural propulsion that I think that. That, that comes across with, uh, you know, uh, water stories. Yeah, totally. And I mean, one of the questions Sayward and I often ask of, of writers who are pitching stories is like, okay, where does the story end? You know, where does it go and how does it end? And and you're right, a sailing trip has a natural start point at the very least, you know? Um, yeah. It, like, yeah, it is. It, it's expedition stories in general. You know, this it was always a gifted outside. I felt like to to deal in topics where there was natural movement, a natural propulsion um, to to the narrative itself. So yeah, it's a, they're good ones to mine maybe for writers who are looking for stories. Although probably harder and harder to get them uh, assigned at the Atavist the more of them we do, <laughs> right? <laughs> but who knows? And uh, maybe take us inside a pitch meeting between you and, and Sayward when you're, you might have a pile of them and you're, and you're trying to make those, those critical decisions uh, of which ones you're going to run with. Cause you know, you've run, you know, 12, 12 a year. So the real estate is, is, is finite and you're making those decisions. Like what, uh, you know, what are those discussions like between the two of you? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I've been, I've been, this is a great question. And I, I was trying to sort of explain some of this to a writer who was pitching recently um, because he had a good idea, you know, like it's, it, it, there's a story there. It's a good one. He has characters, he's done the reporting, but we didn't assign it, you know? And so, and that's like, those, those are the, the conversations that are hardest for us to have and probably hardest for like writers to hear about, but because the easy, you know, there are some stories that come in and they're just home runs, you know, like the, everything's there. And for whatever reason, like both Sayward and I, um, are, are just like naturally interested in it, you know? So like that happens sometimes, but, but more often we're, we're dealing with like a story where, where maybe it has just one of those elements that, that we're looking for. So that's kind of the first, if an idea has some meat to it, that's the first thing we start talking about is, okay, what, what things are we looking for that it doesn't have is it do we have more questions about like source material and how rich it is and and how the material itself will help the writer build out these really vivid rich scenes that we like to have in our stories that that's a pretty common one another one is 
about the beginning, middle, and end. Like, okay, I can see, you know, sort of the animating event that kicks everything off, but what does, like, Act 2 and Act 3 look like for this story? Or, like, okay, there's a lot of good stuff happening in the story, but is there a particular character... You know, we just don't feel attached to like an individual in the story, and how do we get at- attached to someone and and have sort of a guide to get us through the piece? So we're so we're kicking those types of questions around, and then and then going back to a, a writer and asking for more and seeing if if we can sort of develop it. And it, and I feel like for me the the difference in a story that we assign after asking those questions and don't assign is basically like do i get more interested or more confident in the story as we're moving along and if i do like it, that's what we want you know i i like when i get an answer that surprises me or you know makes me feel more assured that like okay not only does this writer know what they're doing, but pieces are there. Every time we turn, you know, to ask a question, there's there's an obvious answer. And then other times we just get less interested in, in the story as as the mm-hmm. as we ask questions, you know. And that's sort of I think that's the tough thing for writers to hear because they're obviously very excited about it, and you know they have all this information at hand. So they, it's not as if they can't answer the questions, but sometimes as they answer them, I just think, oh, I'm just not surprised by this. You know, like it, it's sort of moving in a direction that I, that I could have predicted. And when we can only publish 12 stories a year, that can sometimes be enough to say like, no, we just, we don't want to wade into this. And in what ways did Tyler's story hear about the Valencia and the shipwreck and everything involved increase your confidence in in the story and his ability to to pull it off yeah well he i mean it was a good pitch from the get-go you know like it 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 has it narratively speaking it like the story has the goods you know with tyler you know he just he knew so much about it so that that always makes us feel confident, you know, because sometimes we'll reach out and we'll say, well, you know, what is, what does so-and-so say about this? And and the writer will say, I don't know. I haven't talked to him, you know, and like, that's sort of a red flag, uh, or at least a yellow flag. And, you know, with Tyler, he just, he so clearly had done the research that he, he always had an answer. So that was certainly confidence inspiring. And the story itself, I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly. I should have reread the pitch. I don't remember exactly what questions I asked, but, but I know that the more I learned about the story, it just came into clearer and clearer focus as we talked, whether that was in the pitch stage or like actually in writing drafts and, and, talking about how the story should move along the characters were just there you know and there and there was rich source material that tyler both knew and and was able to find in the first place so it was it was one of those stories where it just really didn't hit many hiccups you know it just sort of moved along pretty steadily now i understand that uh when you were first having your conversations i think he 
was wondering, you know, how much should I be writing? And I think you might have told him, be like, you know what, just throw it all in, just yeah. write as much as you want. And then well, he took that leash and he ran with it and gave something like 40,000 words and <laughs> and uh, something of that nature. It might be off by a few thousand or two. Uh, but then, you know, he was, he, he loved how you were, you essentially cut it in half, if not more. And he was like, oh, this is great. So when you read that giant chunk and started to whittle, not even whittle, like take off giant limbs to like essentially deforest yeah. the, <laughs> the, the, the piece. Uh, yeah. How did you go about doing that? So you, you kept what made the story special for, for the Atavis without totally, uh, you know, I, I guess like, you know, yeah, gutting, maiming, yeah. maiming the piece. Yeah, maiming, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I credit Tyler with being open to to being edited in that way, you know, because it's not every writer's preferred method <laughs> of working. And, right. and sometimes it's, you know, depending on the writer, you know, sometimes it's not actually that helpful, you know, for me to do that type of cutting. Um, but, you know, in this case, in this particular story, I mean, Tyler just has so, he did so much research, you know, like he, he easily has a book length story about the Valencia in him, you know, if he, if that's something he wants to do. And so for me, really, all I did was focus it on this particular incident in, in the Valencia's life and and the characters mm -hmm. that were on it. And so anything that didn't pertain to this one trip sort of just like went by the wayside, you know? And and I'm I don't know if I'm unique in this or I suspect not. I, I suspect there are there are editors who don't mind cutting and there are editors who probably struggle with with doing it. But I I can be brutal. You know, like I, I have no, I have no problem, like just running in with a running chainsaw and just hacking a story to bits. But I, not because the quality of the writing is bad or anything, but just like, we got to pare this down. So I do in my, in my cutting, I keep every line that I cut. You know, if if it's like a couple paragraphs or less, I just drop it in a comment, a comment in the document. And if it's a section or two sections, I just pull it into its own document and leave a note for myself. Like this is where this cut goes. So I basically put it out of my head. Like, how is this all going to read? And and I just empty the piece of words. You know, I just remove words as fast as I can, and then I read yep. it through again. And say like, oh crap, I need a transition here, or like, oh, that section that I cut actually did have some information that I want to work back in. So it, between those couple stages, it, it ends up it actually doesn't take me much time. And and in this case, like sometimes you have to do a, a lot of like massaging between one section to the next when you've really hacked at it. But because what what I ended up cutting from this piece was interesting. You know, Frank Bunker is a character we meet. Okay. So we have other good stuff about Frank Bunker and his life. 
but it just doesn't really matter here. But we're still talking about Frank Bunker in the piece, you know, so I didn't have to transition or introduce a new character or his wife or anything. You know, it was all sort of there. I'm just removing like the second and third paragraphs about him and leaving the first, you know. And what I what I like about sometimes when I get drafts early enough in uh, in the process, I tend I've been getting some of the ones that are heavily cited and footnoted, which gets stripped away in the final product. But I love seeing that because it is just a testament to how much effort and research uh, an organization goes in on the writer's behalf. And in the case of Tyler's piece here with courtroom testimony and other kind of testimonies that help fill in that narrative, you see just how much uh, went into it. So for, you know, for the purposes of fact checking and also just uh, keeping things straight, you know, what can a writer do, you know, modeling what Tyler did to uh, as they're writing to just keep keep things straight and the kind of sight as you write? Is is that something you might recommend? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think there are writers who feel like um, like, oh, I'm just not you know, I'm not like a footnotes person. That's not how my brain works. And I think like for most, like 95% of those writers, I would say like do it anyway. Like you're, you're just wrong. Like it, it will improve. It will improve the writing. It will improve the process because when you're, when you're that focused on details, it's, it's all just building this richer world in your head you know, to, to be able to know where you got this particular thing and, and what else was around it is only better for the writing. I think And you're right. Certainly it's easier for fact checkers and the writer during the fact check process to be able to go back and say like, that's not how I remember reading that, you know, like, let me make sure I'm not missing something else like that. That's, proven helpful countless times. But for me, when I get a piece and I open it up and there, you know, Tyler's piece had like 300 or 400 footnotes or something like that. I just, yeah. I go, okay, like I'm in good hands, you know, cause like if I, if I have a question, especially historical pieces, an editor might have a question like, are we sure he slipped on a piece of lettuce? That feels oddly specific. Like, was he concussed? And if you've got the footnotes there, the writer can go back and say, okay, I've, I know where that came from. I reread everything I have about it and here are the answers. And writers who don't do that, sometimes you'll ask them like the same question and they say, I don't know, let me look into it. And like three days later, they're like, I can't even find where I had that originally, you know, like I read it somewhere, but it's gone. And, and like, what a terrible feeling as a writer, as a writer, because you're going to lose that fact, you know, if you can't, if you, if you can't find where he originally slipped, well, so long slipping, you know, like it's out of the picture. Um, So yeah, it's, it's worth getting in the habit of doing it, even if it's not like, as you actively write, you know, it should be something writers return to regularly to just sort of beef the piece up. Awesome stuff as always. Love getting the editor side of the table. It's what's really unique and cool about these Edivistian pods. Now we're going to have Tyler Hooper. He's a writer, podcaster, and storyteller living on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. 
He has a master's degree in history, formal training as a journalist, and over at his Medium page, he wrote a little blog post about the process of writing this Titanic of the Pacific piece about the Valencia, and, you know, what influenced him, some of his struggles, you know, go follow that, go read that, I'll link up to it in the show notes, of course. And as luck would have it, like I said, he talks about a lot of the stuff in that Medium post on the, in, this, in this podcast, this one right here, right now. Like, right now. Now, now I understand you've got a master's degree in, in history. So what's, uh, and th- this story has something, uh, is something of historical in nature. So, uh, you know, what's the allure for you with, uh, you know, going, going back in history and trying to troll out those kind of narratives? Yeah, that's definitely uh, a huge draw for me when I'm looking for a story is that like nerdiness of history to me that, you know, having that background and I I love doing research. So honestly, when I find something like this story that there's like thousands and thousands of pages of research, um, you know, I think a lot of people might find that daunting and I I still definitely did and do, but uh, there was definitely a lure to that alone, like just sifting through pages of the past and reconstructing people who used to be and did amazing things that aren't around to tell it anymore. Like that's something that I really, really enjoyed, especially about this story. And uh, I mean, it really comes down to like, who doesn't like a good historical shipwreck story? I mean, it's yeah. they're everywhere. They're so interesting. And so to find this one that was like, I think a little bit lesser known, but like, really de- like really rich in details and and with, like basically had a built-in narrative in a lot of ways like yeah it kind of felt like hitting the jackpot a little bit so uh, and then that mixed obviously with like the historical context of the time you know steamships and and what's going on on the west coast um it just yeah i couldn't put it away there was there was no way what about the the west coast and the pacific ocean you know makes it so harrowing and dangerous for the the seafarer it's a great question. Um, it's really, really rugged. Uh, it's it's especially in you know the time of the Valencia in the, in the early 20th century. Um, you know, there's hardly any life saving devices. So if something goes wrong at sea, and there's lots that can go wrong. You know, there's huge, especially in the winter. There's huge waves. Um, you know, really strong currents and tides. Really horrible weather. And it still to this day, like it, it rains. It's foggy. There's storms, uh, particularly in the winter here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, you know, the wind like anything can blow a ship off course uh, and push it towards a reef or a rock or the shore. And, you know, if you're looking for refuge, you're not really going to find it, especially, uh, you know, in 1906 uh, when you're on a steamship. So um, there's not a lot of room for error uh, and it, and it's, it's really precarious. And I think that's why, uh, you know, the, the moniker graveyard of the Pacific for that stretch of ocean uh, Pacific ocean from like, you know, roughly, I guess, like, Oregon up to northern Vancouver Island is like really apt because there's been, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lives lost um, to two shipwrecks and and just as many ships. Um, so it really is a perilous part of the globe and, and still is. I mean, obviously, modern navigation equipment and that sort of thing has made it a lot safer. But uh, yeah, I think it's just where it is. It's the geography, the topo- topography. It's uh, it's it's really perilous. Is that something that you do when you're reconstructing these things too, where you you seek out the maps and then you get you get a real sort of top down sense of what these people are dealing with? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I found a few nautical maps that you know had depths and and I, you know it's it's tough. There's not 
in terms of the actual Valencia and its route, there's not a lot of, um, you know, primary sources that I could find, you know, of maps that like the crew would have been using necessarily, but it's pretty easy to piece together, like how, how difficult it would be. And I mean, all you really have to do is look at all the shipwrecks before, uh, the Valencia that were like just horrific. Like I'm thinking on off the top of my head, like the Pacific and I think it's 1875 where a couple hundred lives are lost, uh, just basically in, in a very similar area. And, what makes that that straight that Juan de Fuca straight that you were talking about so perilous then especially is that if you miss it like you you have to make a sharp right turn to get in there just past uh Cape Cape Flattery and if you don't get that you're going right into the side of Vancouver Island uh, and it's going to be a rocky horrible death much like what happens with the Valencia so and, and back then you know you're using very primitive ways of navigation especially if you're lost you know like things like dead reckoning and um, you know, charts and maps and things like that. And and to some extent, I probably a little bit of intuition, you know, I think after a while, captains and, and masters would get used to doing that route and know when that turn is and know what to look for. Yeah, if you miss that, you're in a lot of trouble because you're heading into really rough water and you're heading into a real an area that is so sparse of people or civilization, like, even today, like the west coast of Vancouver Island is like, it's a it's a wonder but it's also really, really rugged. And so you don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that turn. And unfortunately, in the Valencia's case, that's what happens. Uh, and it, and it, as we know, it doesn't, doesn't end well. So how did this story get on your radar? So, oh gosh, this is, this is like a long time coming. So back in like, so I moved to the West Coast. I'm, I'm originally from Ontario, Canada. Uh, I moved to the West Coast back in 2013 did a journalism program after doing my, my master of history uh, master of arts and history i heard about it in like 2014 2015 i don't remember from it was like someone i was working with they had like i don't know if they had dove the wreck or had been near the wreck but they mentioned it and it sounded really intriguing and so i hopped online and right away you know there there are there have been things written about it you know it's not like i'm the first person to do it there's been lots of book chapters there's been one local history book written about it so there was a lot of secondary material at first to kind of sift through and the more i read about it the more i was kind of like i feel like there's more here like it was just kind of like an instinct i was like i i don't feel like the whole story has has been told and so yeah and i just started you know with local archives here in victoria and on vancouver island and then you know that turned into like going to seattle and like finding the the testimony the physical testimony and it's like 1200 pages and going through every page and photographing it and and just starting to like pull a wide net of primary material and secondary material and i ended up with like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and so yeah it was a several year long journey like it was uh you know i think it took uh, until like 2018 19 when i seriously started to consider doing something with it and, and that time previous from when i found out about it in 2014 or 15 like it was just researching and just pulling stuff together and making notes and trying to figure out how to tell this story because i'd never never had dug into something of this magnitude like it was totally new and overwhelming to me so um but yeah going back to how i how i found out about it it was just like a whim one of those things in your gut tells you like there's there's more here and i i gotta i gotta dig into this you mentioned uh, a second ago about it being somewhat overwhelming so how did you start to get your head around the titanic <laughs> nautical pun i guess uh, amount of uh, information that you were you know, dealing with uh, so that you could start to see the story start to emerge from all those documents. 
Well, at first, I just uh, stacked it all in a corner of my apartment and didn't look at it. <laughs> just, just ignore just, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would just, you know, occasionally I would pick up a few sheets and then I would just get like overwhelmed. And I, and I, you know, had other things going on in my life. Like I still, you know, to this day, I have a day job and this is something that I have to do you know, on the side of my, on my desk at night and in the evenings on the weekends. So I, I did for a while, I didn't know what to do. And then, um, I don't remember, like, I, I think I just kept pulling me back. Like it, it there was just this energy. Um, and then I'd see that pile and the testimony, especially sitting there. And I think going to Seattle, honestly, and actually like being in the national archives there and picking up the testimony mm-hmm. and having done that trip and, you know, took in the time like two days to like photograph all the pages and then come back and print them all that's when I was like okay like this is some sort of commitment and so really what started was I you know started getting up early every morning before work and just reading the testimony and making notes and I did that I think for I was trying to think today it must have been like close to four or five months like it, it was a while um and then I ended up with like kind of a you know an abridged version of the testimony. And that was kind of the first step. I think once I went through that, and I found stuff that I hadn't seen published elsewhere, I was like, okay, there's something to build off of here. And this is going to be the key to it, you know, a key to not just telling the story, but telling it the way I want to tell it, because I didn't want to do, I wasn't going to write like a, a history book. Like I didn't, I didn't want to do that. It had to be a narrative, like I wanted to do nonfiction narrative, like it had to have creative and literary elements, or I wasn't going to do it. Like that was just something that I was like, Otherwise, I'm just I'm just going to leave this alone because someone else has kind of already done it. So really, it was getting that testimony and then realizing how rich it was and then going online and, you know, going through the newspapers and seeing all the little details about the people involved and the characters and like what happened to them and what their lives were like before. And, and that's when I was like, OK, I think I have enough here to do something with it. Yeah. And in some of the research that um, that I'm doing on on a book, it's like there are certain things that I didn't know happened. I'm just been going newspapers.com, just basically going like state by state, county by county within states. And many of the articles I'm coming across are repetitive, but then occasionally you come across other ones that are kind of like the diamonds in the rough. And then over the course of cataloging hundreds and hundreds of articles, you start to see a narrative topography start to form these tent pole moments. You're like, you didn't see coming, but you're like, they're reported so extensively. You're like, Oh, okay. That that's a moment in the story. And uh, for you, like when you were approaching this, what were some of those moments that might've emerged through your research as like a tent pole moment that might've surprised you? And you're like, Oh wow, that, that's great. That's the juice right there. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really good question. Well, the nice thing to start was that like, story like this rooted in history usually there's like a chronological element that you can start with which is really Mm -hmm. nice like that's a nice way to like make a basic outline and you know sequence of events so i mean and that had already been done in in a lot of the secondary material to some extent pretty accurately so some of the work was already done for me but really it was there was a few things i mean finding out about um this was kind of later on too but like finding out about like john or joe uh, sigalos depending on how you um spell it um there's various ways and different sources one of the greek crew on board just finding out about what happened to him after the wreck and how like you know he had been awarded all these things for bravery and you know trying to swim to shore and then how his life like you know basically became destitute and he ended up dying poor and alone and it was it was like little things like that that i was like oh wow like this is like this reads out of like a dickens novel or something like it's just so almost unbelievable uh and then of course like the character frank bunker um who was you know a real person just like 
him alone, there's something so alluring about him. I don't know what it is. Like, I, I just think he's such a fascinating person. And so when I started to dig into his life and find out about like his life leading up to getting on, on the Valencia and reading about like his wife, like I found the clipping of the day him and his wife got married and then knowing that she doesn't make it. And it, I just became so emotionally attached to some of the characters that finding out that new information was like, gave me kind of not so much tent poles of the plot, but tent poles for characters that I was like, they'll be really strong in the story and people, it'll resonate with people um, beyond it being, you know, obviously a, a survival disaster narrative. And so that's kind of, for me, what really made me feel like, okay, I've got something beyond what's been done. And these are, these are new goal. These are new markers or tent poles that I can work with. Over the course of your, your writing and research and, you know, granted this takes place, you know, more than a hundred years ago, uh, but these were, real people and you know real people passed away real people lost when uh, wives and children in there do you ever come across and i know this is the case with me and so uh, like you start thinking like oh they're you almost have to think about like oh i gotta like on honor these people in a sense because they were real they're not just figments of my imagination and i have to like handle those stories even though it took place a century ago but you still need to handle it delicately Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely less pressure than when you're writing about people who are still very much alive. Yeah. Um, you know, it that was actually one of the reasons I, you know, as both a journalist and I, I'm not going to say historian, but like someone who, you know, understands the mechanics of, of history and how to kind of write about it a little bit. It was it's like a little easier because it's like, yeah, well, if if I don't do this right, or if I do get something wrong, the consequences aren't going to be as grave of if the person, you know, is alive and reading it. That said, I still held myself to that standard, uh, very much so, um, you know, and that's why, like, I don't think it's going to make it so much into the article, but like, my plan is to eventually do a book about this. And, you know, Frank Bunker, for as much of a protagonist he is in the story, like, there are some things about him that I found that aren't aren't so great. And I think that's what makes him a really interesting character, you know, that, yeah. you know, we're not all perfect you know he was very fallible in a lot of ways uh and i think so uh both before and after the sinking so i was really conscientious of how i was telling it and what i was saying about those people and then the thing that really for me i mean there's so the one thing with the newspapers.com and, and having all these clippings and the testimony is that there's so many people that to pick and choose a few is like your main kind of characters it was tough because I'm like, there's so many fascinating people here that I think people should read about, but you only have so much space and time. And so I'm hoping again, like if I can make this into a book project one day, I can incorporate as much as possible because there there are so many people that did amazing things and, and some of them survived, some of them didn't that, yeah, I think the public should know about it and know about those feats. And, and it was, a, I think, a seminal moment in West Coast maritime history as well. There's a great amount of of tension in the story too. And when I talked to David Grant about the wager um, a few weeks ago, it, article, there are like moments of testimony and logs and stuff where, you know, certain characters uh, make it, you know, they survive and yet he's still able to cultivate a great amount of, of tension. And same thing with you. You use a lot of these, uh, a lot of testimony. So, you know, some of these characters or these people live, and yet, despite knowing that, it still feels very suspenseful and like you wonder what's going to, you know, what's going to happen. So for you, what becomes the challenge of keeping tension, even though, you know, like some of these seminal characters, like they make it, but you're never quite sure as you're reading it, uh, you know, as as the story unfolds. The initial draft I sent him, that was something that I struggled with. I mean, the, the he told me, you know, when when this got accepted and, you know, I was over the moon and then, you know, we had our preliminary chat. He's like, just write like 
he's like write you know as many words as you want like he's like try and keep it around twenty thousand, but like just write you know he's like it's easier to trim back and you know keep the story tighter than it is to expand on it i think like the draft i gave him was like thirty-eight thousand words like it was it was huge <laughs> it was like it was basically a non-fiction novella like it yeah. was it was 50 pages and and so and it was funny because i you know for me when i you know and i'm gonna get to your question i'm just trying to get some context was that like you know when i found out that jonah was interested in stuff i was like well i'm just gonna give them everything that i have because i've put so much into this and you know if it all if it doesn't all make it into the article that's fine like there's going to be hopefully a book one day like i can use it then and that was kind of my my thought and so when jonah came back with his edits um that's when i saw and he had you know he basically halved what i had written like i think it ended up being even more than half that he took out and and i actually i was completely fine with it because what i realized after reading my draft and then his draft was like the flow of it was was like riveting like i was like who wrote like i, I couldn't <laughs> believe i had written this like but right. jonah had just moved it around in a masterful way that it now kept that tension throughout uh and that it didn't you know uh meander and get lost in these historical nuances which you know i was infatuated with and done a lot of work to find but weren't maybe going to necessarily be that interesting to the general public so i think the the key to keeping that tension and you know keeping the reader engaged in the story is keeping especially the second and third act like really moving like like these people are in a harrowing situation they're doing incredible things under like the worst circumstances so let's just keep the action going so that the reader just wants to find out what happens next and in that process you know maybe they forget that not all these people are going to survive um and that some of them will and some of them won't and you know i think that's kind of the key you know to lose to lose the reader in the moment of the story rather than them have to think about you know oh well we know where this goes because then you know you're not really doing a great job of you know moving the story along you're you're kind of just putting filler in there till the end right so uh i definitely have to give a lot of credit to jonah because he he like really showed me how how to do that with this piece and it yeah i think it's like reading so well so yeah big props to him on that for sure and part of what when I usually get a hold of these atavist drafts are usually right before they they're usually right before they go to the fact checker. So so it's annotated pretty pretty well. And so I had the benefit of seeing the titanic amount of sourcing that that you put into this. You know, at the bottom, some some of the citations take up almost half a page, and uh, in terms of the footnote, and it's always it's uh it's just kind of it's just wild the amount of the attention to detail that you have to put in like if you're gonna write something you gotta truly like make sure that you're you're saying where you got this information from so um like as you're as you're writing and putting that together are you piecemeal go through like you'll write a little scene and you're like all right annotate right away so you don't lose it yeah very much so like i think i annotated in my initial draft well i uh, so i started i think in the i wrote my process was a little strange. Like I, again, I'd never done anything like this before. So I was like very overwhelmed and I was like, Hey, how am I going to do this? And I was like, Hey, well, let's just break it down by act. And so I wrote each act sequentially started with the first one and then made my way to the fourth. And I just kind of wrote them in separate documents. And then, yeah, I, I footnoted basically, I think I started with every sentence, but that was getting like so ridiculous. And then I, so I started to do it like, well, if you know, I'm pulling for one paragraph, the same two sources, let's just put them both at the end. And that was kind of how I, 
I ended up doing it. Um, but yeah, it was an absurd amount of footnotes. But Jonah, but Jonah did say like ahead of time, like for the sake of the fact checker and you, when we get to that point, the more annotation, the better. And so I was happy to oblige. And uh, it was nice not to have to like stick to a rigid format. Like he said, you know, like don't make it indecipherable but it doesn't have to be you know like apa or chicago style to the t so that made it pretty quick and easy to do um and so yeah for for in terms of keeping track of where i got things from um yeah i I did it as much as i could because otherwise like it still happened like we're you know during the fact checking process i'm still like like late last night i was like where did i get this from and couldn't (laughs) find it uh and then it took me you know an hour and a half and i was like ah there it is you know so as 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 much as i tried i still i guess missed some gaps and missed some missed some sources or some areas but uh yeah i i just went within when i'm in doubt just cite it again like why not right when you're um when you're setting down to yeah to to write and and everything are you much of a an outliner and a sort of a pre-planner to kind of grease the skids ahead of time? So traditionally, no. I mean, I, and I mean, I've never really before this written anything like over four or 5,000 words. And so, you know, I'd always kind of start an outline, but then get bored with it and be like, I just want to write the story. And then, so I kind of just jump into it, kind of keep in, keep in mind an outline, but, you know, kind of get out a first, like, I think my first rough draft is my outline. That's kind of what I'm learning about myself. Like my, my first drafts are very rough. Like it's literally just like a a dump from my head of like what I want to say, how I want to say it, how I think it should be structured. And so that's kind of how I approached this article, but I did it pretty methodically. So, um, you know, when when I knew I was going to be writing this and it was going to be potentially tens of thousands of words, I was like, okay, well, let's set like word goals. So I, I think I had it where I was, I had like six months to write it again, because I was doing it in the mornings and the evenings. And so I just kind of mapped it out that I would write X amount of words for, for each act. And I would basically work on, like I mentioned earlier, like one act at a time. And I would do like, I think for the first act, I did like six drafts. Uh, and that was crazy it did not need to be six drafts but i really just like spent the first three just like trying to even figure out how to start the story like i did like three different versions and i was like hey what works like i did i even did a prologue which was so silly looking back because i was like this is an article like why would you put a you know 700 word prologue but i was just trying to figure out like what was going to get me into it and then once i kind of by the fourth or fifth draft of that first act, I was like, okay, I see how this is going to work. And so that kind of became the process. Um, and then to be honest, like the second and third act were like really e- much easier to write. Cause that's when the action and like the crux of the narrative is really taking off. And so I was getting really into it and having a lot of fun writing it. Um, but that first one was, was really tough. I mean, I was also really overwhelmed and nervous. Like I was like, I don't even know if I can do this. Like I was like, now I've, you know, I've pitched it and I've sold it, but I'm like, how am I going to pull this off? And so, like I said, that's why I stuck to like a really disciplined methodical approach of like getting up early every morning with a plan of like, Hey, what am I writing today? And then that evening, if I wasn't doing any more writing, it's like, Hey, what are we doing tomorrow morning? And just trying not to think about anything else, like just taking it day by day until I had a thousand words, 2000 words. And then when I would get to the end of an act, um, I would kind of go back and well, I would actually leave it for a while and start the next one. And then at some point I would go back to that one. And usually, you know, having now been away from it for a while, give it a read and then give it another edit. And that kind of process carried through for, for all four acts. And 
I had a schedule. I ended up luckily staying ahead of schedule most for the most part. Like I never felt like I was too far behind. Um, so, yeah. so that was good. And once I kind of knew that I that took some of the pressure off. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to get this done in time. It's just a matter of do it right. And you know, don't, don't rush. Like you've got the time. So that was kind of my chaos. I call it like an orderly chaotic process. Cause that's kind of how I operate. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but yeah, it was it it was very much a feeling out process because I again never done anything of this scope. So I was like, what works for me? And and it was sticking by that schedule and just thinking about getting those words out per day. And that was it. And then not worrying about if I was gonna have to do another draft. It's like, let's just get this material in there. Because once the facts are in there, it's easy to move things around and, and rewrite them once they're already sourced and footnoted. Like that's you know, they're there. Um, it's the getting that historical information from the material into the actual draft that is like kind of like you know pulling you know you got to pull the weeds like what needs to go in here what doesn't so that was kind of the most excruciating part of of each each act was kind of that first one where it's like hey well what are the sources and what are the actual facts we need in here and then how do we spin that into a narrative was there a particular moment over be it over the course of your research or over the course of your writing where you started to feel like that that anxiety start to dip a bit you know, as you were, as you were sort of synthesizing this? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think it ever dipped completely. It was very much a fluid thing. I mean, I was like, I was to the point where I'm, I remember the first mornings of getting up to write and just being like staring at the screen and just being so overwhelmed and being like, holy, you know, like, what did I panic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, complete panic. And so that's why I was like, hey, let's just break this down week by week, you know, and let's just set goals and and kind of like, let's just get into it. Cause I knew once I got into it, I would kind of like, you know, you, you find a rhythm and I mean, I have all the research. It's not like I, I don't have enough to tell the story. It's the problem. It's the opposite problem. It's like, okay, what am I going to use for this article? And what am I going to leave out? And so I would say, I think after I finished the second act and I was getting into the third I remember times feeling like, oh, this is because I remember there were times like I'm not very high on my own writing, like I'm pretty hard on myself. And so I remember there were times writing the second act where I was like, that that's a pretty good sequence like that actually reads pretty well. And I remember once that started, I, I, yeah, I was having mornings where I was like really excited, like waking up before my alarm to to get to it because I was like, yeah, I'm really feeling it. But it also came back because then I, me- I remember when I finished it, I was like, what is this? Like, I just was like, I think Jonah's going to hate this. Like, this is like, a, this is a manuscript. Like, I just remember being so, yeah, just like going back and forth between like, this is pretty good and it's got some good stuff in it being like, is this just like a crazy person's like telling of a shipwreck like i don't know it's 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 it was really really hard to tell so but yeah there were definitely those moments around act two and three that i think i was like okay there there's something in here and there's some good stuff um but they were they were few and far between there was much more panic and (laughs) and just general anxiety than there was like oh this is really good even now like just doing the final iterations like last night i was like i gotta get away from this like i can't i'm torturing myself by reading this again so um it's yeah uh, maybe when it's done but even then i'll I'll find something to to wind myself up about it so yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah the um uh, thinking about the the anxiety part of it too like even in the even in research because you know here's something that it's not like like you were saying earlier it's not like it's never been written about before so you're like, all right, well, how am I going to differentiate 
my piece from what's been done in the past and, you know, in uh, asking the, or answering those questions like, you know, why is this important? Why tell it now? How am I the best person to write it? And, you know, what new can be said that hasn't already been said? And uh, it's like you're always on the hunt for those, either be it an interview or finding something in the archives that elevates it above anything that's been done in the past. And it's like until you get like that really that nugget that you've never seen before and you know no one else has, it's like, okay, now I start to feel good. Like I've got something special here. Otherwise, you're just regurgitating stuff. And that that leads to its own kind of panic. Yeah, totally. And that was the last thing I wanted to do. I wasn't going to do it. I think that's why it took me so long to to like pitch it or do anything with it. I mean, I did a couple presentations at local, you know, historical societies or like maritime museums, like, you know, about it just to kind of stay present and on top of it. But I, I yeah, I, I, at one point I was like, maybe it'll be a podcast. And I was like, well, how the heck would I do that? And it was like, it was just like, I was really struggling with how to, to make it my own and, and to make that apparent when I, when I wrote it. So um, yeah, that was something I, I grappled with for a long time. And then I think once I, you know, I, I took like two and a half months to write the pitch for the Atavist. And so like, I really thought it out and I was like, Hey, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to do it my way and with my voice. And so I actually didn't read a lot about it from secondary sources for a while, just so that when I wrote the pitch, it felt like it was coming from me and not from something else. So I think that helped. And honestly, like, I don't know if anyone has obsessed this many years in a row and researched it like I have like I just feel like that would be so surprising and I'd love to meet that person but it's <laughs> like um yeah it's it's astounding how many like gigs of research and papers I have in my office like um to the point where it's like I know there's still more out there like that's the thing I know I'm not done like there there are definitely other holes that I could look in but I think that was what really kind of motivated me and everyone I talked to said the same thing they're like dude I don't think anyone's obsessed as you so I don't think you have to worry <laughs> so um that was kind of I guess reassuring and maybe a little worrisome at the same time <laughs> Yeah, as part of these uh, Atavist conversations, it's usually a time where I get to dive into how how the writer formulate formulates a pitch and makes it seducing enough where, say, we're in Jonah, like, oh, yeah, let's take a flyer on this. And you said it took you, you know, two and a half months to really t- turn the screws on it. So what was the unique challenges to you as you were looking to uh, really hone up a, a solid pitch that they would say yes to? Yeah, I mean, there were a few. I mean, one was like brevity. Like, I just feel like the best pitches I've ever written have been short and sweet and to the point. And the problem with this story is that like, there's so much to tell. And I and I knew like, so when I when I was, it was like, I think it was during the pandemic. Yeah, it was in 2020 when I decided like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pitch this thing. And I think I took most of the year to kind of like mull it over. And then 2021 was when I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this. And I did it later in the year. And I, I made a list of publications. And, and I remember looking at that initial list and being like, none of these publications do features over 4,000 words. And I'm like, I'm not, again, I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not going to do a retelling of the story that some other people have done in 4,000 words. Like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to dig into it and really tell it. And I'd actually written a, a really shoddy book proposal for this during the the pandemic. And I kind of came out of that. That's I think that's what I did in 2020. And I kind of realized like, oh, I'm not there yet. Like this, I don't know what this looks like enough for a book. So then I was like, well, let's do let's do an article. And so after I made that shortlist and realized, well, I'm going to need a publication that, you know, can do more than the traditional four or five, 6,000 words, even. I was already a huge fan of the Atavist. And so I made a new list and they were at the very top. And I and then I made, had a couple other publications after it. And I went, you know, I'll just start with number one, you know, shoot high and then work your way down. And so 
I really, the pitch itself was easy to write because I knew what parts of the story would be interesting, especially in the out of this case, having read a bunch of their stories already. Um, but the problem was I just, I think I just got in my head about it. Like I, I, I pruned it. I think I spent a month writing it and then like literally a month and a half, almost another two months just pruning it. And really what saved me was I finally, I'm very secretive. Like I don't like to show you know, colleagues or friends, like my work until it's done, like even pitches, like, I, I don't know, it's just like probably a lot of writers feel like that. But I, I just don't like to show it like I, I very yeah. much want to keep it to myself. And so I kind of like, I don't know what it was. But I had this old um, journalism instructor, uh, Gary Ross, who's incredible. And and he taught me feature writing and in, in, uh, at the college I went to for journalism. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to send this to him because I was like, I need I need some feedback from someone. And I figured he would you know, at least at the very least, tell me it's good or bad, or, you know, it's way too long, like, just give me something to go off of. Because at the time, I didn't, I think it was like, early in 2022. And so I, I sent it to him. And um, he wrote back and he's like, he just had nothing but amazing things to say about it. He's like, this is one of the best pitches I've ever read. And he just said, this is like, all this is so thought out. And like, so it, that was like, when I was like, oh, okay, like, th- it's okay to like, have this, you know, almost thousand word pitch or whatever it was, mm-hmm. like, it was super long, like, because it's good, and, and everything in it, it needs to be there. So that was the moment that I decided, okay, uh, I'm gonna send it off. And uh, it kind of took away those worries about it being too long, or maybe meandering and not having enough of a focus. And, um, you know, sure enough, it it worked. And yeah, on my first shot, I, I I landed it. So it was it was it was amazing, and definitely oh Gary, some thanks for that because I don't think if I had showed it to him, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have sat on it for another few months and kept tinkering with it. But you know, sometimes things are just ready to go, and so I took a shot, and it worked. Or how have you developed a you know a system by which you can organize your research so you can you know, best take advantage of uh, of when it's time time to write, so you're not not in scramble mode. Uh, hmm, that's a good question because I think I definitely for the article, that's one thing I learned. I, my research is so poorly organized. Um, it's, I don't know what it is about me. Uh, it's like, I start to organize things and then I stop. And like, I started to realize when I was writing this, going through like my folders on my drive that like, I had like multiple photo like fo- different folders for newspaper cl- clippings and then I had multiple f- like folders for photos and like there were a few folders that were pretty well organized but like honestly it's it's a it's a really chaotic system um I ended up using the search function most of the time because I knew like the one thing is like I, because I had read so much of the material so many times like I generally knew what I was looking for depending on what I was writing so I would just use the search function and like nine times out of ten I would find what I'm looking for or at least the right folder yeah. um but like you know in my office there's no filing system there's just there's piles of papers i mean at one point i did kind of you know take all the, the clippings and hard copies of things that i had and like group them by like acts or like you know this is about this character and like i tried to do that a little bit and it just got so much that and then once you start pulling those things out and using them like they just get lost in the shuffle and things start to spill over and um yeah it's something that if if a book happens one day i'm gonna have to write because that was definitely a challenge for me was like trying to even find things sometimes i was just like where is this like i know it's somewhere in this stack of crap that i have on my (laughs) my my desk but it's just not coming at me right now so i don't have a good answer for that like i definitely wish i had um 
a better system going into it. I think I had enough of one, especially on my on my hard drive uh, of like digital stuff and things I'd taken photos of that it made it easy enough to navigate. But um, it's definitely a lesson I learned doing this. Like you, you got to stay organized because it also just cuts into the time and energy you spend on these pieces, right? Like if you can't find something, you can't move on and get to the next section. So yeah, definitely a lesson I'm going to take away from this big time. Have, be, be organized with your research. Like don't don't let it flounder and sit and like file it like make it purposeful and like put something on it so that you can find it later. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like if you keep a dream journal or something, you, you wake up, you're like, wow, that, what a dream that was. I'll remember it later and write it down. And invariably you forget the dream. You're like, damn it. I can't remember what that was. It's like the same thing with you're doing research. You're like, I'm been cataloging certain names in the newspaper. I'm like, oh, that'll be a good person to keep in touch with. And then if I don't write down, like say 1972, you know, ran for Milwaukee High School in Milwaukee, Oregon, like ran in the two mile in this race or or whatever. If I don't make those little notes, like I'll remember in the moment, but it, it might be like three weeks before I like get up the courage to call, like look up this person and call this person and be like, ah, shit, like who, who are you? Like, where did you run? Like, I, I, ah, damn it. And that, now, I'm, now I might have to call this person and be like, tell me who you are because I don't remember anymore. Yeah, and I think like for me not to make excuses, but because like I was doing a lot of the online research late at night, like after work, tired, exhausted, like I would get it and I would save it all and then I'd go to bed and I it just I just didn't it was almost like I didn't just have the time to properly organize it and then, you know, I'd move on to researching something else. And so that just be kind of came a trend. Like if I was able to do it all day, I think I definitely would have had like a more clear system and you know, I can't count how many times I put it on my to-do list, like organize your research, organize your research. And like, <laughs> I would start and then I would have to actually do more research. And then it would just can't, can't, I couldn't keep up with it. And so, you know, again, not making excuses, but I think if I had more time, like I probably could have, you know, done a better job of keeping things in line because it is, it is at the best chaotic. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the, the the back and forth that you uh, shared with Jonah as you were you know trying to make this the best you know possible piece it, it could be you know it was that dynamic that you guys had it was Jonah is like so easy and such a pleasure to work with like I was pretty nervous like pitching to the Atavis because not only was I you know a big fan of it but you know I've worked with other editors before some good some that you clash with and I wasn't really sure what to expect um I didn't know Jonah previously um actually funny story and I don't know if he remembers this but he actually um the only other interaction I ever had with Jonah was I pitched an article to outside when he was there and he rejected me and it was like one of the nicest rejected rejections I've ever gotten um and so uh I knew he was an editor there but I also knew there was you know say word and I wasn't sure if there were others so um, when I, uh, yeah, when, when we started going back and forth, like he was so reassuring, he was, you know, he, he said, he's just like, just write it. He's like, he's like said, put all the good stuff in there. And he's like, we'll figure out through the editing process. Like, you know, what's the meat, what, what's the fat, what's the meat for this piece and how do we, you know, how do we find that? And so even when he, again, when, even when he came back with, you know, slashing more than half of my original draft, like, you know, he was so nice as a, don't take this, you know, the, like as a bad thing, he's like, it's just, we need to keep this tighter you know this is like the hollywoodized version of this story that's what we want to do and i was like yeah absolutely and so it's been great i mean you know there's we're still you know going back and forth and i mean i guess you know we're we're there's little things that i'm fighting for you know like little 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 things that i want to keep in and you know but it's he's just so 
nice and understanding and you know even if he decides he's not keeping something like usually his reason for it is much better than why i want to keep it so i just you know acquiesce because um yeah he's just been such a pleasure to work with i mean the dynamic has been easy and um uh, yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, it's just been, it's just been a pleasure. Like I, I pleasantly surprised. And honestly, he's taught me a lot about, um, you know, how just editing my own stuff, like how to, how to trim back and how to scale back. Cause I tend to just go and, uh, starting to see that like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get to the point. Sometimes you can't include every cool historical fact you find. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And given that, Prior prior to this, a lot of your experience with longer features was in that sort of mid thousands range of four or five thousand, and then you know this one the draft I have is around eleven twelve thousand ish, and like you said, it was three times as long before. So as you were looking to really stretch your legs in terms of the endurance of writing a longer story, what were some unique challenges that that you faced as you started to stretch beyond what was your previous comfort zone? The challenges of going long, I mean, that's the one thing. And I think this is credit to Jonah, like, because he told me to go for it. He just said, I, you know, he said, like, I've had writers hand in 60,000 words. He's like, just, he didn't really seem that concerned about it. It honestly wasn't a huge anxiety for me. Like, I, it, it kind of became one a little bit, I think, as the piece kind of was morphing. And I was like, I was thinking in my head, you know, 20,000 words for the first draft sounds good. And even if we go with 15 or less, like, that's great. And then once I got over the 25, thousand marker and i was like i'm not kind of close to finishing this i was like I, I got i started to get worried um but but honestly there because there's so much research and there's like i i found so much about this it, it was a challenge of like what don't i include like what is going to put jonah to sleep and I'm, I'm sure i still put in lots that made him just like go what like why is this paragraph in here about you know the steamship evolution in the you know 20th and 19th century but there was just you know it, that's what the challenge really was for me it's like what do i include and, and honestly like i cut a lot of things from that huge draft and that's you know that's what's reassuring to me in the long term that this could be a you know a book or a bigger project because there is still lots left to tell and and i, I think jonah has kind of said the same thing to me like you know this is this is actually good because now you have you know a lot already written and we're only using like you know like you said a third of it so um yeah, I didn't really have that. I, like that wasn't an anxiety. That was like the only thing that didn't make me anxious was how long it was going to be. It was more, <laughs> it was more just getting everything in there and not missing something really cool and unique that I had found. Like that was kind of the thing. It's like, and even now, like when I'm reading it, I mean, some stuff got cut, but um, yeah, that's just the way it is. But uh, I was lucky. Like, like I said, if 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 someone had told me, hey, you got ten thousand words, that would have been a whole different story. Like complete panic mode on top of panic. Like that would have been really really difficult to do as a first draft. So very lucky that I was able. To just kind of go and then you know you know we obviously paired it back quite a bit yeah given this story took place uh early 1900s uh you know world building becomes uh, pretty important to kind of transport us somewhere where did world building in the in the idea of like uh really sculpting the the time period uh where did that fall on like a list of priorities for you as you were synthesizing this piece yeah, it, it was a big priority. Like I really wanted this to be immersive. And so with history, you have to make the 
the period. Like you have to make the reader feel like they're there. And I mean, the master of that, in my opinion, is Eric Larson. Like every book that he's written that I've read, you feel like you're there. Um, and you know, you can, it's like the senses, you know, you can feel, you can smell, you can see things like that's kind of what I, what I really tried to do. And luckily there's, there's a lot of photos out there. So like photos was huge, like looking at photos and getting a sense of, you know, what a place would have looked like then or around then, you know, was really, really helpful. Um, you know, it was, it was massive. And then, you know, too, like I got to hike half the West coast trail was part of this and see, you know, kind of like, obviously it's a modern hiking trail now, but I got to see the path and the, the geography of like, not only where the ship sank, but like where the bunker party and those people like would have, you know, been trekking on shore. And so that alone, like was really, really helpful in understanding, um, you know, what these people would have went through and trying to, again, take the take the reader there you know and knowing how cold the water is here in the winter and and you know all those sorts of things i mean i could have done more of it you know i, I really would have loved to have taken a boat on the whole um you know the whole journey but that just wasn't wasn't feasible um so yeah i mean it was it was something i was very very conscious of because i knew i was like that's only going to add to the immersiveness and again going back to that like keeping the reader in the moment and them not even thinking about Oh well, we know how this ends already. It's like, no, I want you to be there with with these people as they're trying to survive, and maybe not knowing um, or forgetting, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die and, and what's going to happen to them. So, yeah, it's it was super important. And honestly, I, you know, maybe being hard on myself, but I could probably going forward do a little bit better of a job with it. I mean, um, there's probably a lot of historical details that would provide a nuance that I, I could have added or kept in. But, um, you know, there is a fine balance too to not get too lost in that time period because you want to keep the story moving. Cause I mean, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things that were happening in the early 20th century, especially in, in the West coast of, of America and Canada. So yeah, it was, it was, it was something that was very important to me and, and, you know, something I kept in my mind constantly as I was writing. Yeah. And nowadays, especially post pandemic times, I think it, it might be, challenging to actually get your get either get face to face with people or in the case with you like actually actually go out and and hike the landscape and and actually put yourself immerse yourself where these people were and then get in um, try to get into that headspace as much as possible so like just as a as a skill to you know, do more boots on the ground like how important was it for you to really to really get there to to, to get on the scene. Yeah, it was, it was really important. And, you know, and there's like, I think the big part for me is I really wanted to get to where the sinking happened. Um, Cause everything else, like, you know, I w went to Seattle and I didn't make it to San Francisco, uh, maybe for the book, but I didn't, I didn't make it to San Francisco, but you know, I, I trolled their, their archives online and spoke to the people in San Francisco and, and got all the info from them and lots of photographs. And so I was able to piece together that part pretty good, like the early journey just from photographs and online information. But I really thought like for the sinking and the survival aspect, I need to get out there. And so that was, you know, what I did. Um, you know, I did it the, like, actually I, it was in September of last year we did it. So it was like close to when I was finishing the, the draft, uh, which was, it was a, it was a good time to go because I needed a break, needed a little bit of a break from the writing. And um, yeah, it was, Again, it was crazy because even to this day, the West Coast Trail is like a super challenging hike. And like my partner and I are not, uh, we're not the most outdoorsy types of people. Like we do day hikes and stuff, but this was the first time we did like a multi-night, you know, bring all your stuff, no yeah. cell phone service kind of hike. And so it was super daunting. And I, I remember every time I felt nervous, I was like, 
well, could you imagine being shipwrecked in 1906 with none of the modern amenities you have in your backpack right now? Like, you're fine. You're going to be okay. Like, I have an emergency device if I break my ankle and need to get evacuated off the trail. Like, none of these people had that. And none of them were <laughs> planning to go on a hike or to survive in the woods. They were, you know, thinking they were going to wake up in their their staterooms and, and be in Victoria or Seattle. So um, that was like, it was really good to have that experience and, and to, to kind of see what they went through. Because honestly, it's incredible. Like, it's the terrain out there is unlike anything I've ever seen. And even on parts of the trail that are maintained to this day are super rough and rugged and dangerous. Uh, so it's quite shocking. Like I, I literally couldn't almost believe that the, the, the bunker party survived the way they did, like given what they, what they had to go through and the condition they did it in. It's, it gave me a whole new perspective and, you know, I hope, I hope some of that comes into the piece as well. Um, I really tried to think about that as I was writing those scenes, like, this would have been horrible. Like this would have been like yeah. your, your worst, worst nightmare. Like no one would want to scale a 80 foot cliff on the side of a rocky ocean in the winter while it's raining and there's snow on the ground. Like it's just, it's yeah, it's all, it almost doesn't even seem real. It's like, I, I just don't understand how they would have been able to survive and do it, but they did it. And that's, what's incredible. And that's why it's such a, such a powerful story. Yeah. Cause you start when you read when like when I was reading this, at least uh, I'm, trying to put myself in the kind of a, a tiny lifeboat and how turbulent the ocean is. And you're getting hit with 40 degree ocean water. You're soaked to the bone. You might've lost your shoes. Someone might've died and drowned already. And you get to shore and then you, then the work, the real work begins and you're <laughs> like, Oh my God, like this is truly hell. Like it's totally to your, to your skill and to your delivery, like truly immersive. And like you, you bring the hell to life. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and, you know, too, like losing, like, you know, Bunker and Campbell both lose their family, like in the yeah. lifeboat. So when they get to shore, they're moments earlier, they're with their kids and their wives, and then the boats flip and they're gone forever. Like, it's just, and then for them to just band together with, you know, eight or nine other guys and to be like, you know, we're going to survive together. And for Bunker, you know, he be kind of becomes the leader and, and it's, it's shows like just kind of what kind of person he was, you know, he took charge despite having this horrible personal tragedy just happened. And I don't know if it was shock, adrenaline, a little bit of both, like not having a choice in that situation, but it's incredible what the human um, spirit can do. Like when, when it's put under like extreme and horrible circumstances, like, you know, some people really do uh, prevail while others don't. And um, yeah, so I'm glad. I'm Thank you for saying that because I think it is hell. Like I think what they went through was absolute hell. I couldn't imagine a worse scenario. It's it's yeah, it's amazing. Very nice. Well, well, Tyler, as I bring these conversations down for a landing, as you, as you know, I like to ask the guests for a recommendation for some kind for the listeners out there. And it can be just anything that's exciting you these days that you want to share. So I'd extend that to you. What might you recommend for the listeners out there? This was the hardest question to prep for, by the way, because I was like, what, what do you recommend? So my crazy brain decided, I was like, hey, you know, what? we're talking about shipwrecks. We're talking, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of your listeners, I'm assuming, who are writers and readers and, and love narrative nonfiction. So I was like, I'm going to recommend a couple of nautical disaster narrative nonfiction books because I was like, I think it's on cue and, and they are really great books. And I want to preface this by saying neither of these authors need, needs me to do this. They're complete bestsellers and their incredible books, but they also kind of tie into the piece a little bit and acted as like some inspirations. So the first wreck is a book called Madhouse at the end of the earth by uh, Julian Sanctum. Uh, and it's about a uh, it's, I won't give a whole synopsis, but basically it's like a, a, a ship called the Belgica, a Belgium 
ship that uh, in 1897, um, an aristocrat wants to go and be the first to reach the, reach the magnetic South Pole, but the whole crew ends up getting trapped in the ice down there. And it's this horrific, maddening story of what happens to these men while they're stuck um, for a prolonged period of time. And, um, you know, I've, I think a lot of us have read Shackleton's Endurance, and I've read that as well. And honestly, like, to me, this caps it like it's, it's the writing is riveting. The story is incredible. And it's, it literally is like one of the most horrific accounts of a shipwreck that I've ever read. And the fact that it's so well researched and written as well just makes it incredible. And it was the book I actually read right before I started writing the piece. I was going on a trip. It actually just happened so that after I sold the pitch to Atavis, uh before I was going to start writing, I was going on a trip. And so I don't know about you, but I have to bring like, you know, a small library with me to have yeah. choices of books to read from while I'm relaxing. And so I was walking through the bookstore and, and the title and the cover just drew me in. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I read it, um, finished it on vacation. And it was probably the best book to read before jumping into my own uh, nautical disaster narrative. So that's my first wreck. And then my, my other wreck is, uh, and again, this is probably so well known, but Dead Wake by Eric Larson, The Sinking of Lusitania. Uh, it is probably one of my favorite books. It is certainly my favorite nautical uh, disaster book. When I wrote this, I was like trying to be Eric Larson in scenes. I was like, how do I get these details? How do I find out what this person did? And uh, I kept it on my desk and on my nightstand uh, throughout the entire process. And whenever I was feeling demoralized or stuck um, or inspired, I'd pick it up and just read passages, um, sometimes to be inspired, sometimes to be demoralized even more, because <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going <laughs> to be able to tell history like this. But um, yeah, so those are my two wrecks. And I thought it would tie in nicely and cap this cap this episode off. So uh if, if anyone out there is looking for a uh, a uh, a really good nautical disaster, check out uh, either of those books for sure. Well, I think that's that's great in a sense. Be I love talking about how books can be like like a mentor text as you're synthesizing like your main thing. Like I imagine musicians going into the studio if they feel stuck, they'll go and pull down like a Judas Priest or Black Sabbath out and be like, all right, I'm gonna get that that riff and that, that backbeat in, into my bones and then go back to composing music or, or noodling around. And the same thing can be, can be true with, with books. If you're writing a long article or something, you know, pull down best American sports writing or something. And like Glenn Stout says, like shotgun some leads, like how are these guys, <laughs> how are they getting into it? And, uh, or you just mainline some of these passages like you did with dead wake. Like, I think that's so important. Like the answers are kind of there and, you know, you can pull that down for inspiration, not for plagiarism, but for inspiration. Yeah, totally. And that's the thing. Like, that's why it's, you know, you go to them when you need them. But, you know, I, again, it's more for inspiration. And, you know, you've mentioned The Wager twice, which it's funny. I actually really want to read that book. And I, I just looked up my local bookstore is sold out of it already. So I'm going to have to wait. But yeah. I was thinking, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to save that book for right before I start to rewrite the book proposal. So I'm like, that'll be a perfect book to read and then to get into doing my own proposal. And so, um, yeah, it's to me, it's always an inspiration. I, I don't get any greater. It's got to be from, you know, other authors. That's that's where mostly where it comes from. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I could wreck a whole bunch of books and shows. Shows are great, too. But, um, you know, I thought in this case, books would be more appropriate. So, um, yeah, I'm jealous you've read The Wager, though. I can't I can't wait to read it. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good one. And it's, and it's pretty lean, too. You know, it, it's it, I I mean, it was super impressed by just how how tight it is. It, it doesn't read too thin, but it doesn't read very long either. It's, you know, it's really a real, really tight. 
And uh, yeah, just, Grant, Grant yeah. seems to like know how to do that really, really well. Like even his first book, I was impressed by how much he took all that info and, and, and you know, it could have been a much longer book, Killers of the Flower Moon. So yeah, um, yeah it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I'm sure we could talk books all day. <laughs> oh, yeah, no kidding, man. Well, this was awesome. Well, thanks so much for the work, and I'm so glad we were able to touch base here and talk about how you went about uh, composing composing this piece on the Valencia. So this was this was awesome, man. Thanks for coming on the show and talking shop. Oh, it was, it was an honor. So thank you so much for having me, Brendan. I really appreciate it. Oh, did we do it? Did we do it again? Did we make it to the end? Thanks for listening, CNFers. Thanks to Jonah. Thanks to Tyler. Great stuff. If you dig the show, consider sharing it with your people. You can always tag the show on social, at CNFPod on Twitter, at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. No parting shot this episode. I know you're bummed. But there will be one come Friday when I speak to cartoonist and illustrator Akeem S. Roberts, the mastermind behind the cartoon. That won me the New Yorker cop- caption contest. Cup caption? Caption contest. So that'll be fun. That's a good one. In any case, until then, a few days, that's it. And I'll be right here again. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See you.